Would you please turn with me in prayer? Father, the, um, the very last words we've heard here from this passage is uh, the call to encourage each other with these words. And having heard that instruction, we ask for that even now. Uh, that these uh, truths which are so important and yet sometimes so hard to hold on to uh, would be uh, pushed deep within our souls as we reflect upon them together. Lord, we pray that you would teach us, that you would help us to listen, and that you would more and more make us into a people of hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we are continuing uh, in our series in First Thessalonians. We're now uh, probably about two-thirds of the way through. Um, I don't know how you go about when you're doing personal Bible study. For me, I have found two questions are generally quite useful to ask if I'm trying to understand what a passage is saying. Um, they're very basic questions. They're, what is this passage about and what is this passage's goal? You know, what is it about? Like, what, what aspect of truth, whether it's about God or this world or about ourselves, is being focused on? And also, what is the goal of the passage? Uh, every, everything God says to us, he says, for our good, meant to shape us and change us. So how is this particular passage meant to, to grow and change us? And one of the things I really like about the passage that we just read is that Paul just straight up answers both of those questions. Perhaps you noticed. He, he just immediately tells you, what's the topic? Verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep. What's the goal? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's how we're supposed to understand this passage. What, what's the topic? The topic is about death. That's clearly when he's talking about those who are asleep, he's talking about those who have died. It's a few months after Paul has left the Thessalonian church. He didn't have lots of time to teach them everything they need to know. They understand that they are saved by God through Christ. They understand that they are meant to wait for his return. But since Paul's departure... Some have died, and they don't know exactly how to think of that. That's the topic. The topic is about those who have died in the Lord, and, and the purpose is encouragement. Or, or as he says immediately at the very beginning when he says he doesn't want you to be informed, he says that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Now, it's important to recognize that Paul doesn't say, I want you to understand about death so that you may not grieve. That's not what he says. Because grief is, is in this world, the proper response to death. I know that sometimes I feel like we're trying to almost kind of process death by just treating it as if it's not something to grieve over, that it's just life's great change agent, a natural part of the circle of life. But but I think we all know deep down that's not the way we respond to death, that there is something about death that we just viscerally are opposed to. We, we know that our bodies are not meant to fail us like they do. And we, we know the pain of when, when someone else who is close to us is ripped from the fabric of our lives and the fabric of our relationships and we find ourselves at certain times wanting to, to call someone, and, and they, they're not there. And, and, and for those people who are especially close to us at certain moments after their death, we're not quite sure how to move forward with life without them. We, 
We know that there's something wrong about death. Jesus, even though Jesus knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, in the face of death, he weeps. And that's significant. That shows us that for those of us who know Christ, still the appropriate response to death is grief. But what Paul says is that we grieve differently. He says, others in the face of death do not have hope, but we do. Now, does that seem a strange thing for Paul to say that others do not have hope? Because if we think about it, we probably can think of many friends who aren't necessarily believers in Christ, who have all sorts of different expectations about what happens after death that they, they take comfort in. I know of of some who, when, when the loved one dies, will speak of how that person continues on with them, maybe in their memory, maybe in their heart. Sometimes people will even speak of how they believe that a person is still somehow with them, watching over them. I know of others who speak of how they, they take comfort in the idea of reincarnation, of how that person's life continues even if it, as it begins in someone else. And still others, of course, will speak sometimes vaguely of some kind of hope that this person is in a better place without really knowing what that means. And so, when you think of all the different ways that people comfort themselves in the face of death, it might seem strange that Paul says, others do not have hope. But that's because we need to understand that the Bible means something different when it uses the word hope than than our general common languages. Oftentimes when we use hope, we're in some ways just speaking of kind of like a, a glorified wish, right? Like, you know, say, say you say that you were, this year you were hoping that the Cubs would have a good season, or you were hoping that the White Sox would make it to the World Series. Those were hopes, but they were just wishes. They were not based in reality. And similarly, I think when we're talking sometimes about things that people kind of cling to in the face of suffering, they're, they're much more than, than that kind of hope, but still, they are truths, or I, not even necessarily truths, they are ideas that people want to hold on to because it makes life more bearable. We, we wish that our friends were nearby after they died. We, we wish that reincarnation is true. We we wish that people are in a better place. And, and even though there's not any objective evidence for this desire, so that we can continue on, we just hold on to that reality and believe it's true. That's oftentimes, I think, the way that people speak of, of their hope. And what we're meant to understand here is that when the Bible speaks of hope, it's not speaking of just kind of a deeply held wish. Biblical hope is not a subjective desire that we hold on to as a belief. Biblical hope is a confidence we can have based on something that is objectively true. Biblical hope is a confidence we have in something that is real and that we know to be real, but that we don't yet experience. And Paul is saying, when we think of hope in that way, of a confidence that we know based on evidence, not just based on our desires, we alone, those of us who are in Christ, when we look at death, we can grieve with a confidence of what lies beyond it. And, and the reason is we have this basis 
verse 14, it says, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Our confidence is based on the knowledge that about 2,000 years ago in a city about 6,000 miles from here, a Jewish man in his 30s named Jesus was executed as a criminal, recorded, seen by witnesses as someone who has died, and two years later, he broke through death into a new, limitless form of life that the world had never seen before. But many, many, many witnesses, hundreds of witnesses, have seen Jesus having conquered death, risen from the dead. That is historical truth. And it's because of this historical truth that Jesus rose from the dead that we have hope. He says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That's the hope that we have in the face of grief. It is something not just that we wish, it is something we can know. Now, to say that we know this doesn't mean that, that there are no more mysteries or confusions or uncertainties. Whenever the Bible speaks to us of what happens on the other side of death, on what happens at the end of time when Jesus returns, it always resorts to symbols and metaphors and images, and that's, that's for a good reason. It it is speaking of something that goes beyond our experience and our ability to comprehend. One commentator who was writing about the passage that we're looking at likened it to imagine if you are trying to speak to a person who has been deaf from birth and try to explain colors to them. How would you explain colors to someone who has never seen light at all? You, you would have to use Experiences that both people have in common to try to speak of something that they will never fully be able to get. Maybe you would speak of how fluorescent pink is really loud and gray is kind of quiet. Or, or you might talk, of course, about some colors being warm, like red, and some other colors, like blue, being cold. But you'd never really be able to describe it literally. You're just having to kind of give hints. And, and whenever the Bible speaks about what will happen beyond death when Jesus returns, it it's like that. It's, it's speaking to us about things that we understand so that we can get just a sense of what it will be like. So when Paul here is speaking about that time, he actually, he, he leans in to a passage from the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel, if you know, in the second half of Daniel, it's filled with all sorts of strange images, and Daniel 7 is no exception. You have four different terrifying beasts, and then it says at the very end, Thrones will come down, and the Ancient of Days, speaking of God, will sit on his throne. And then one, like the Son of Man, will come with the clouds. And he will come to earth, and he will be the everlasting king. And a few verses later, it speaks of how saints of the Most High, that is, the faithful followers of this Son of Man, will join with him and reign forever on this earth. It's all images. We're not meant to ask, how big of a throne will it be? Or what kind of animals? That's, that's not the point. These are images meant to point us to something beyond our understanding. And Paul takes that, that narrative, that, that set of images, and he says, okay, now let me try to draw out more so you can understand how this question fits into that. 
Jesus is very clearly the Son of Man. He is the one who has risen from the dead. He is the triumphant King. And Paul in these verses is saying, when Jesus comes on that last day, when he comes with the clouds, there's that metaphor again, coming in victory. At a certain point, en route, as he is coming to the city, he will call out this loud command. You might notice that it speaks of how that, that the coming of the, to the Lord himself in verse 16 will descend from heaven with a cry of a command. And then he describes how that cry is going to come out. There will be the voice of an archangel. It's like his executive is going to go from place to place announcing that command. There's going to be the sound of a trumpet that is alerting people to this command. And what is that command that Jesus is crying out? We're never explicitly told, but the, the context makes it clear. He is commanding all those who have died in him to arise. Because what does it say after? And the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul says when, when the Son of Man comes with the clouds, when Jesus comes with the clouds, he will command and the dead will rise. And then those of us who have trusted in Jesus who are living will be caught up with him and we will join him as he comes to earth to begin his kingdom. That's the image that we're being given to long for and to hope in. And again, this is not meant to be treated like this kind of verisimilitude, this documentary style of a fact-by-fact -fact picture. We're not supposed to imagine how big are those clouds or, or anything like that. Sometimes I think churches have gotten confused. You might be familiar if you've grown up in the church that that entire series, like the Left Behind series, has kind of used this idea of being caught up to speak of, of the rapture and all sorts of stuff like that. That's not Paul's point here. He's, he's giving us this image of a triumphant return and of all coming with Jesus. For us to kind of to try to zero in on some of these details would be like if we were that blind person asking if fluorescent pink is so loud that we can hear it, you know, two rooms away. It's misunderstanding the kind of detail that we're being given. It's an image. It's metaphors. And yet those, these are images, while it's kind of an impressionistic painting, Paul is giving this to us to communicate some very significant truths that we can find courage in, truths that will give us hope. And, and for the goal that he has set for us of being encouraged, I want us to just reflect on these four truths that I think our passage communicates to us about what we can hope in on that last day. And the first truth that we see here is that our bodies will rise. So scripture elsewhere tells us that the moment someone who has trusted in Christ dies, they are immediately absent from the body, but together with Jesus. You might remember when Jesus was on the cross, he said to the thief who looked to him in faith, today you will be with me in paradise. And one of the most precious promises of the Bible is that even death will not separate us from the love of Christ. And yet as important as this is, this is not the center that the, of the hope that the Bible holds out for us beyond death. Because the Bible speaks of us as embodied creatures, 
creatures who will not be whole until our bodies are raised again. And so when verse 16 says that the Lord will command and the dead in Christ will rise first, when he's talking about rising, he's talking about our bodies. That in ways that we won't understand right now, the details will escape us. Somehow our bodies will be reconstituted and, and they will be redeemed bodies without aches, without pains, without decay, with strength and with glory. They will be changed and yet they will be our bodies. Now, if you're at all familiar with human history and especially the history of, of human thinking, you might know that the body is something that actually people have had at best a very ambivalent relationship towards. And we can kind of understand that because when you really think about all the aspects of the body, I mean, you think of sweat and odor and secretions and shedding and all of these things and decay that are aspects of our bodies you can understand the level of embarrassment that people feel. And so when we look at different thinkers, like Plato, he speaks of the spiritual as a higher level and, and the physical as something lower. Or, or Gnostics in early religion spoke of the bodies being the way that our souls are imprisoned and redemption is to escape our bodies. We could even say in our, see in our modern day that, that diminishing of the body, even transgenderism I think is a, a depiction of that, where where there's a sense that who we really are is our inner self and our bodies really don't define us in any way. We, we have at best a complex relationship with our bodies and yet the Bible speaks very differently. The Bible speaks of a hope that we have where who we are in our fullest sense, our soul and body joins together. We've just said, what is the central historical reality that we take hope in? It's that Jesus didn't just raise spiritually. His body was risen from the dead. And, and his promise to us is that the same thing that happened to him will happen to us on the last day. Our bodies will rise. When I was a kid, maybe, I don't know, like, Owen Hoving's age. I was, you know, like, I, when I was told of heaven, I think I had in my mind, this would be like, what, age 12, this idea of kind of like spirits that were hanging out kind of in this kind of bright fog, and we were all just kind of supposed to be looking at the bright light that was God, and maybe singing praise songs, and honestly, I knew I was supposed to be excited about that, but I just really wasn't. And if you have any kind of vibe of that, if you understand what I'm talking about, you know what I'm saying, that there's something about it that feels empty, and it should. Because we are not meant to be disembodied spirits. That's not how God created us, and that's not his goal for us. When we try to imagine the future, we will never fully be able to imagine it rightly, but we should imagine it physically. We will have bodies, we will be caretakers of the land, we will explore and create and build. We will enjoy, physically enjoy the beauty of creation and we will enjoy the embrace of one another. 
And it's that last point that gets us to the second hope that we see clearly in our passage here. Not only will, we, will our bodies be raised, but we will be reunited. And we see that. The end of verse 16 says, The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Just, just hear those words. We will be caught up together with them. In that moment, we will be reunited. Now, I want to just kind of like savor this image for a moment. But before I do it, just, just I'm wanting to just kind of clarify something really quickly. I want you to notice that when Paul speaks in verse 16, he says, he talks about the dead in Christ will rise first. What Paul is talking about here specifically is those who died trusting in Jesus as their king. And, and if you've been with us just maybe recently over the last few weeks, perhaps you've noticed how regularly when we're praying, we're praying that people would come to trust in Jesus. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we invite people to use this as a time perhaps to take hold of Christ. And there are many reasons for that, but I hope you see this is one of them because we want every single person that we come to know to experience this reality. We want every single person that we see here to be able to join with us in this reunion on the last day. Because it is, it is a precious thought, isn't it, that we will be together. Again, this is different from just wish casting. This is different from just us kind of holding on to something because we need to believe that in the moment as we grieve the loss of something. This is a promise that is directly connected to the reality that Jesus has risen from the dead. What will that be like when we are caught up together with them. I've never met my grandmother. She died when my, my father was 12. And I wonder what it'll be like to meet her. I, from what I understand, she died trusting in Jesus. And I, I wonder not only what it'll be like for me to meet her, but when my father will meet her, and she will see him for the first time as a grown man, and she will not be weighed down by cancer anymore, but there will only be joy. Who comes to your mind when you hear these words, we will be caught up together with them? Who do you look forward to being able to celebrate with? Who, whose embrace do you long to feel? Sometimes I think when we think of moments like this, a part of us feels almost a little bit afraid because sometimes there are words that were said, there were things that weren't resolved. But, but what we can expect is there will no more be residual tension or awkwardness, no unresolved anger, and there will also not be the fear of somehow being parted again. All will be right in this reunion, and that's, and that's because of the third hope that we have here. Not only are we promised that our bodies will be raised and that we will be reunited, but we're promised that we will experience Christ's victory. Because that is the point of that coming with the clouds imagery. When Daniel speaks of coming with the clouds, when, when Paul speaks of coming with the clouds, he is using an image of final victory. 
Jesus, who has already won from dying and rising again, will complete his victory when he comes with the clouds to reign as the eternal king. When he comes, evil will be no more. Injustice will be undone. He will fill the world with his glory and peace, and that will never, ever change. And just imagine Never again will a child be crushed by a cruel word of an abusive parent. Never again will a family have to huddle hiding from an army bent on genocide. Never again will anyone be shot or beaten or raped. Never again will the words be uttered, it's cancer. Never again will vows be broken or families be torn apart. Never again will you or I experience the shame of knowing we hurt someone or the frustrations of failure or the confusion of doubts or the ache of loneliness? Never again will there be sadness or suffering or even death because Jesus will be there in victory and his reign will know no end as he rules over all things as he makes everything right. And we will experience that with him. And it is that that actually brings us to the fourth of these glorious truths that Paul holds out for us in this passage. Our bodies will be risen. We will be reunited. We will experience the victory of Jesus. And finally, we will be with Jesus forever. That's the climax of our passage it says, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then verse 17, we said, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. We will see Jesus face to face. And in that moment, we will recognize that he is supremely great and glorious and beautiful, and also we will recognize in a way that we cannot understand right now that his love for us is deeper than we have ever been loved by anyone else. Now, of, of these four promises, these four truths that we're meant to hope in, I, I suspect for many of us, this is the one that we might have the hardest time emotionally grasping. We, we can imagine and appreciate the idea of having perfected bodies without pain. And we viscerally long for that idea of reuniting with those who have died before us. And in our imaginations, we can begin to comprehend what a world without evil might be like, and we begin to ache for it. But the idea of being with Jesus, it's so foreign to us that it can be hard for us truly to connect to that idea. And yet I promise you that on that day, 
this by far will be the best of these four truths, not because we don't care about our bodies or about other people or about the world being without evil, but because in that moment we will realize there is nothing greater than to know and experience the presence of our Trinitarian God. You know, um, there's been a lot of interesting TV shows that have come out over the last decade. One of the ones that I found most kind of thought-provoking and enjoyable was a series called The Good Place. Perhaps you're familiar with it. It's a, a comedy that really focuses on the afterlife. That's what The Good Place is, is speaking about. And there are a lot of interesting things, ideas that it plays with. Perhaps for me, one of the most dissatisfying parts of the show is how it ended. So in the, in the conclusion of the series, and I, this won't in some ways spoil the series if you ever want to watch it, but in the conclusion, the last episode, they finally experience paradise in all of its fullness. That they've come to a place where every desire they want is fulfilled, where they can experience great enjoyment of each other, where they can learn, where they can have fun, where it's in some ways like this extended perfect vacation where every good desire that they have is fulfilled. And yet, after a certain period, the main characters decide to end themselves. They have learned all they have to learn. They have experienced all they have to experience. They're tired, and they're ready to be done. And as I said, I found that just deeply unsatisfying, and yet at the same time, there was something about it that was honest. Because I think what it illustrates is the limitations of our own wishes, of our own understanding. If we are just in our minds creating an afterlife that's just a really good version of life as we understand it, we will never be able to, to describe something in our thoughts that is worthy of, our t of eternity that will truly satisfy us. We were made for something more than what we can imagine. And Scripture, again and again, if we have ears to listen to it, calls us beyond just our own wishes to something greater. It, it, it comes to the very limits of human language as it tries to tell us. It's, it speaks of, of mountains that sing and of a sky that shouts for joy and of trees that will clap their hands at something that is so glorious. We read of bread that we eat and will never be hungry again. Water that we drink, and as we drink it, waters of living life, rivers of living water will spring up from within us. We, we read of a city that will not need the sun or the moon because the Lamb of God will be the one who shines. And each of these are trying to alert us to a reality that we can just barely sense in this life. A reality where every... joy, everything of goodness that we taste, every experience of love that we encounter, we realize that each of those things are pointing beyond themselves to the great source of all that is good. On the last day, we will we will learn and know in a way that we cannot possibly fully understand right now that our God is endlessly interesting. That he is infinitely beautiful. That he is 
eternally satisfying. We will be together with the Lord, and that will be an endless source of joy that will never, ever, ever end. This is the hope that we have, the hope unlike others that even as we look at death, we can have in the face of grief. And Paul only has one command for us in this entire passage, it's a simple one, therefore, encourage one another with these words. He's saying, I think, we need to be thinking more about this. We need to be talking more about this. We need to be allowing this to be part of the stories we tell each other and the images that we imagine and we long for. Not just in moments where someone faces death. Oftentimes, when we are grieving over the loss of a loved one, we are least ready in that moment early on when the sting is so great to hear these truths. It is before that and after that that needs to be just in the water we drink, the air we breathe, the conversations we speak, that these truths will be deeply embedded in us so that when we look at something as horrible as death, and it is horrible, we can hope because we know that, enemy of the, that death is the last enemy that will be defeated. Because we can believe, because God tells us that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting that we will be together, and that we will be with the Lord. And what I'd like us to do right now is, um, is to pray. I'll, I'll lead us in prayer, and part of the way through, we'll have a time of silence, um, silent confession or silent prayer, and then I'll bring us back together at the end of the prayer as well. But would you please, as we hear these words, let's respond to our loving God in prayer.